0: I went to high school in Jacksonville, Florida, where uh, the reason I bring that up is in the mid-90s or early 90s, actually, it had a a small jazz scene for a while that was actually really vibrant, mainly because of the migration of this fellow, uh, Bunky Green, who came from Chicago to Jacksonville. Bunky was a saxophonist who was kind of a role model for Greg Osby and Steve Coleman. And he moved to Jacksonville right at the time that I was interested in music. He uh, had a big impact on me. And so I started studying a lot of jazz music. As did a saxophonist, that seemed perfectly normal as well. Did so. you study Did you study with him? Yeah, um, both in high school. And then I did my first two years of college, actually, in Jacksonville as well, the University of North Florida, which is where Bunky was teaching.
1: Okay, yeah.
0: Um, and then I moved to New York in 1995 to study at Manhattan School of Music, also the saxophone. I was just studying the saxophone. But at that time, the curriculum was pretty interesting there because you could really take whatever you wanted as long as you filled your own requirements for your degree. So I got really interested in composition and kind of did it on the sly. kind of did it without anybody else knowing I was really doing it. So I started taking all the courses that would be toward fulfilling uh, undergraduate in composition without actually being part of that program. Why on the sly? I mean, why were you... Because there was, you know, I don't know if it's was it a moment in time there or whether it's something that persists? But with the scene of people that I went to school with, there really was a pretty judgmental sense of community. And so you were either part of the community or you weren't. And so for the jazz community, you were either on their team or you were not on their
1: team. And studying composition would have ostracized you a little bit, literally, um, like in this school?
0: Yeah, either. Maybe not. Maybe this was all just how I perceived things would go down. But yeah, that, that, there was definitely some of that. There was something perhaps too bookish or intellectual or square or stuffy about this idea of studying composition. Okay. So yeah, so yeah. more or less I just did it. When I finally um, got out of school and, and years later went back to study in a more formal way, um, my friends that I went to previously to school with were very surprised. They had no idea that it was an interest of mine,
1: even though it had been for a long time. Even I though you had been doing it. But yeah, you I had been uh, doing it. You, but they didn't find out about performances or anything? I didn't know. Or... I didn't have any performances. Oh, so, you just, uh, so this was literally, you weren't part of the composition department at no, all? No, I was just it taking
0: was... all the classes. And then yeah. I got out of school, and by that time I realized that I really wanted to just compose. Yeah. And so I just took time off and wrote music.
1: But you weren't performing at all?
0: I was performing still. But from the standpoint of like having a vision for what I wanted to do in the future, like hustling for gigs was not what I wanted to do. I wanted to write music. And kind of out of that, at that same time, evolved this thing called Wet Ink, right when I finished school, which was essentially to bring together people who also knew that we had gone to school for something that we weren't really, we weren't mad about it, but we knew it wasn't quite what we wanted to do. Yeah, I remember Matt Matt Hoff was in that. I mean, wow, this gets really complicated with all the different personalities. See, Wet Ink has also gone through a lot of transformations. So it didn't start off as an ensemble. It started off just as a group of people who didn't know exactly what they wanted to do, but knew whatever they were doing right now was not fulfilling. And I can say, for the most part, it was jazz musicians who just wanted to create some kind of sense of belonging amongst ourselves to kind of help one another out, either just talking about things we thought were interesting or promoting for one another um, in small ways or large ways. Like, for instance, we, we threw each other concerts at our apartments and things like that. This is when in 90? 90... This must have been 98. Okay. So anyway, yeah, that was early New York. And then I went back to school to how study. Many years,
1: how many years off did you have? I
0: took two years off between that kind of first, between the saxophone degree and then going back to Manhattan School of Music for composition. Okay. And I actually enjoyed my time at Manhattan School of Music quite a bit, but more the second time, the composition department I liked. And so all this time also wet ink is kind of going on in the background because I started that in those two years off. So I had this group happening that was kind of presenting concerts, but again, it wasn't really an ensemble. It was, wasn't quite a composers collective. It was kind of this weird, ambiguous group of people that just didn't quite know what we were doing, but we knew we liked one another and we knew we thought we were in one another were interesting. And so we were trying to help one another went back to school for composition, became clear to myself that that's really what I wanted to do. Um, And so then that started affecting uh, how wet ink was organized. Yeah, it went on. Well, because it becomes a little more complicated just because there was another group that we also started around this time called Z's. So that's where See, Matt Huff really wasn't in Wet Ink. He was later. He was in Z's, and I was in Z's, and Sam Hilmer was in Z's. But Sam and I ran Wet Ink. And then because Z's for so long took up both our compositional and performing efforts, that's why Wet Ink was more of a presenting organization. But then when, at least my own, I wasn't interested in doing so much playing at that time anymore, at least a different type of playing. I wanted to do more what I guess one could loosely say, like concert music. I didn't want to be doing... I didn't want to be traveling and staying on people's floors and playing in rock clubs anymore. I made the decision to more or less have Wet Ink become more of an ensemble. And so that's where kind of Wet Ink and Z's parted ways. And then Z's went through a bunch of transformations. Wet Ink went through a bunch of transformations. And now that, w- that happened in roughly 2004 or 2005.
1: Yeah, I, re- I remember someone mentioning... Like that. Was that a smooth transformation or No. Was bad? Um no actually it was a
0: smooth transformation. It's just being in bands is just hard in general because you're around people all the time. We were rehearsing all this really hard music and I think the biggest thing was we were all different ages. So it was it was kind of hard to relate to one another. So it was smooth for some so for instance, up until very recently, three of us played in Wet Ink all the way until just recently, which was Matt Huff, myself, and Ian Antonio, one of the drummers from Z's. And Ian Antonio still plays with wet ink all the time. So – And he's in – Yarnwire. Yarnwire. I was going to say but In fact, I don't think he's in Z's anymore. So Z's has gone (laughs) – Z's started out as a sextet. Then I think it was a trio. Then I think it was – I I don't know all the manifestations. But it went through like a lot of transformations. And so has wet ink. So that – I mean that's just I think – especially when you're really young – you're you're always finding interesting people but since you're all changing so quickly it, it, there's a lot of transience in that you know there's a lot of quick friendships well and, and of course long lasting ones mm. emerge but you're you're never sure you don't know what the half life on those things are because you don't know I mean, when you're so young, you don't even know what your own interests really yeah, that's what are. I
1: mean, it's like, it's almost a coincidence if you're starting out on the same page as somebody when you're 23. Exactly. Because in four years, you're going to have different revelations about what you want to do with your life. And that's inevitable if you're so young. If you meet when you're a little bit older, then you've already gone through that. And exactly. you can say that any type of change in opinion or aesthetic is less likely to happen at that age. And therefore, the idea for a longer... Uh, friendship or relationship is more likely.
0: Yeah, well, and also, I mean, I, I mean, I totally believe that you should always be evolving and, and looking for new things. But but hopefully you're mature enough to see those coming, or or if not, see them coming, know how to deal with them in you know more diplomatic ways than when you're really young. So when you say well, did it go smoothly? Well, no, we, we were you know we were young and and very spirited about our ideas, and so when our ideas changed, things weren't always really chummy. But now things at least with wet ink, are in a pretty stable place. Again, evolving, but more or less, I think it's distilled into what those of us who are in it now, were are really happy with what's going on. And I guess any other background thing, well, I left out a big one, which is at the same time that this kind of Z's and wet ink uh, took various crossroads, happened to coincide, take as you will, with going back to school yet again. So after I finished at Manhattan School of Music, I took another two years off toured with Z's, worked with Wet Ink, and wrote a bunch of more
1: music. But then I went back to school at Columbia University. So Columbia has a pretty big reputation for certain things. From someone who was there, for how many years were you there for? Seven. So it was, I was there longer that's, than I was at ins- any other single place. And that's that's an insane amount of time to be at a school. Yeah, well, it's a little misleading because you're not
0: studying for seven years. You're there essentially. Oh, I mean, of course, you're the way, going the way to the class. Pro- Right, the way yeah. the program works is you're there... And you're funded, and the reason you get funding is essentially because you're expected to teach. They have an undergraduate program that requires a core humanities class that, as a required core humanities class, it means there's tons of sections. So they need lots and lots of teachers. So the composition students get fellowships to teach these undergraduate courses. So you can stretch them out for a long time because essentially your cheap labor to the university mm. and also as a fledgling composer, you need some kind of safe haven. So it kind of works out for both parties really well. So often, you know, people could finish at Columbia really quickly, but it's not an attractive idea for a lot of folks because it's kind of like a research grant for doing minimal teaching work. I'd say the the four... The last four years were really more about teaching and still interacting with that community, but not like showing up for lessons or going to any classes. That was the first three years. Is that
1: the first three years? Is you really didn't take? Did you, you weren't taking any lessons or not a lot of lessons? I towards was the end?
0: towards the well, no, not towards the end. I wasn't at all, but I had gotten to know all of those folks so well that I mean the teachers or the the teachers. Yeah, um, I'll discuss that in a second because that's actually really interesting. I had gotten to know them well enough that. You know, if you were working on something, you might just ask them to take a look at it. It it didn't feel like a teacher-student thing necessarily, or um, you could always email somebody and just say, hey, would you mind meeting with me? I'm working on something. I just need some other eyes to tell me if if it's what I think it is, blah, you know, whatever. It wasn't like I had scheduled lessons with anybody after the third. You have for three years, you have scheduled lessons with teachers. And after that, you can set things up on your own. I had fantastic lessons with Mirai that were 20 minutes long where I just needed an answer to something that was bending me up and he looked at it and was like, yeah, this. And I was like, okay. Was he insightful in that way? Oh, extremely. When he had something to say, it was always important. But then sometimes he wouldn't have anything to say. Not that there weren't problems with what I was showing him, but I think he was really good at not feeling... He was an awesome teacher and I never got the impression he had he felt any pressure to say anything. He was totally comfortable with not, which was a really uncomfortable situation for the student. Um, But if he didn't want to say anything, he wouldn't. And as uncomfortable as that was maybe in the beginning, I was really attracted to it by the end. How
1: good was he at adjusting to different styles other than you know I mean, he's he's just such a i mean he's he's like the name there's this he's like, like you know he's i mean he's the spectral guy in new york of course the profile of that school is you know i mean definitely not all of it and you know I, you know after listening to your stuff i mean i can't i'm not gonna like you it seems like you have almost nothing to do with that but it seems that people of like-mindedness are attracted to that school because he's there yes and no i think this is like a
0: big myth about columbia that it's the spectral school because tristan was there i think it was like that in the beginning and i think it was also because in the united states spectralism was just in this infancy stage and it was like the next teachable style like serialism it was something that you could really or at least people thought you could really sit down and look it's it's a way of composing it it, it, and it's just it's not that the way i would even argue that atonal music or serial music specifically isn't even a way of composing. It's it's the way that a few people composed and it's a shortcut to writing music that maybe sounds like those few people, but it's not a school of composition, spectral music. And so there's also this idea that so students went there to study spectral music with Mirai. I didn't see a lot of that. Now I'm not going to say there weren't students there that didn't do that, but I saw much more of the other thing. I saw many more colleagues that had completely different interests, but wanted to run them through a kind of Tristan filter, which I'm not gonna say is spectral music, but which has its, it has a certain amount of core values. One being obviously a notion of timbre and harmony being inseparable, but meaning that you needed to consider harmony when considering timbre. So for instance, so-called noise music, if it's not considering this in some kind of harmonic way, is maybe limiting itself. And an idea of form and process that again in some of today's more ubiquitous sound worlds, you there's this kind of idea of monolith. So so he was doing some kind of unfashionable things that, that the people who were going there saw as important. At least I did. I liked this idea of form, um at least as a as a unfolding process. Not that my forms have anything to do with, with his and his types of processes. And I also like the idea of of still being able to consider timbre and harmony as something important to making new music. And he was important for that. So as you mentioned, you don't think my music has anything to do with Tristan or spectralism. Well, I don't think it sounds anything like Tristan or spectralism, but it actually has a lot to do with Tristan and spectralism.
1: can uh, Can you give me an example?
0: Well, in that I consider the idea of timbre and harmony linked in a very, like or inseparable, rather. And so when I'm thinking of certain sounds that might be like a scratched sound, I'm trying to create some kind of like catalog or syntax or language that, or syntax of a language that accounts for tension or release or voice leading. And also just with the combination of those sounds, which I guess is the idea of, you know, an accord um, of harmony. So that instead of just thinking of the sounds as special that what's really special is when you combine them and make composites out of various sounds, which I think is what harmony is essentially. I can probably only name, just to stick up for Columbia and this kind of Tristan clone notion. I'm not shitting on it No, 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 I know. But, but, But I just, I can't think of a, well, I can think of maybe I was there for seven years, which means I knew people were leaving. In other words, I had an overlap with the previous kind of generation of folks, and now I still have some kind of relationship with people that are still there out of the 30 between 30 to 40 composers i've interacted with there i can maybe think of one or two that i would call like straight up disciples like posers that yeah that are just that are just out to do essentially what tristan or guise did and the rest various shades
1: of you know close proximity or very distant proximity well just because he's there, do you think it has this uh, people project this profile onto it? That's yeah, not that's yeah, yeah. not true. I do.
0: Because what he has done in his music and the way he's talked about his music is so concise and easy to talk about to some extent. Then it's very so it's very easy to talk
1: against it because you know exactly or you think you know exactly it's, what it's about. It's, it, it's, it's digestible and the results it, are effective and digestible and in very kind of close connection with the way he talks about it, and that's very attractive to people. Understandably, yeah. I mean that's good composing in a way.
0: But but I don't see. I, I think he has a bunch of very successful students that I don't think sound much like him at all, but that I think have gotten a lot from him. But I'm also selling short, you know, this other thing about Columbia, Tristan had a huge impact on getting people to that school, obviously, or attracting people to that school. But there's a lot of other faculty there that are actually really awesome as well. And so that's the other thing I would say, the reason that Columbia is not so, um, has a certain profile is the teachers are all different as well. I mean, perhaps Tristan is the one who's most internationally known, but George Lewis, Fred Lairdahl, uh, Fabian lavie these are all composers, again, that have various overlapping interests, but they're their own people with strong ideas. So a lot of, you know, we study with all of them. We don't just study with one or, you know, at least that was my experience. I studied with with all of those folks.
1: So how do you fit into the scene here? Uh, how, how does Wet ink fit into the scene here? Is there any type of interesting dynamic between you and other, uh, you know, other groups? I mean, you have one thing, is that you've been around for a really long time. I mean, as far as kind of like the life of new music groups go, at least in New York.
0: Yeah, well, I think that has something to do with the fact that we're a group run mainly by composers, and the composers are all performers themselves. I realize there's other groups that have this model as well, but not as many currently. And what that means is we don't play a ton of shows because we're busy composing a lot of the time. So... We're not trying to make a living just playing concert to concert to concert to concert. And which also means we have, I think, a closeness with other composers that greatly affects our programming. So as opposed to programming the needs of the ensemble from a logistical and the pleasure of playing side of programming, we're pretty distant. But, you know, we have our constellation of composers that we all feel very close to. So I think I think our, just our way of programming is different in that regard. Um, also, because we're all interested in composing equal to or greater than performing, the idea of having any kind of like really strong ambitions about taking over the scene or like being the ensemble, the premier ensemble. Um, that's not interesting to us, I don't think. At this point, I've been around the city enough to have seen these kind of meteoric rises of ensembles, only that they're not sustainable. When you play marginalized music, there's only so much the market can bear. I mean,
1: you can't... You're not going to fill the small room of Carnegie Hall for a Peter Oblinger concert.
0: No. And so what happens is you have these groups that come together as youngsters... 20-somethings and they all get really good and as they get good their repertoire matures and they start throwing really awesome concerts and then they get the word out and they start getting really good press and then all of a sudden they're kind of this superstars of the month and then what happens is (laughs) once they all get this notoriety they all get jobs at different teaching institutions all across
1: the country and they split up and the group goes away um do you think that's in a way that's the kind of secret goal for a lot of these people in a I do. Yeah. I mean, I hate to be cynical or accuse people of being cynical.
0: No, you bet that's, but yeah, um, you make your name doing something
1: and then you get a more stable job using that. Another way to look at it is the, I'm doing this thing I really love, but I also kind of know that I can't do this forever because it's difficult to live off of it. Yes. And at some point I'm going to want to do something else. And the fact that I'm doing this adventurous stuff now is going to help me do that other thing.
0: Right. No, I think there is a lot of that and I'm not drawing the distinction to say that that's bad or good. I'm making the distinction because it kind of has to do with, I believe, at least how I view wet ink, which is that, I mean, we definitely want to grow and I don't want to see seem anti ambitious. Um, But at the same time, I just want something that's sustainable. I don't want it to be some short thing that lasts for a little while and then goes away and then I can go get some cushy teaching job. I'd rather it stay, you know, grow but small and be something that can just be part of my life so that I can freelance compose as one part of my life and do some adjunct teaching as another part of my life and then play and organize with this ensemble as part of my life and have all of them just kind of be on simmer rather than boil. None none of them need to like blow up for me or anything, you know? It's a different type of ambition. Well, to, to just be a little sanctimonious about it. Yeah, I feel like it allows you to do what you believe in more than you might be capable of otherwise. Because as you just mentioned, you can't do a, in New York, you can't do a concert of Peter Oblinger that's going to fill up um, the small stage at Carnegie Hall. Well, then I don't want to play at fucking Carnegie Hall because I want to play Peter Oblinger. <laughs> but also I don't want to throw my ensemble under the bus. So you, that's what I mean by a kind of, I just think you can be moderate and do the things. What's funny is by being moderate, you can do these really radical things. But if you just want to be radically successful, you have to do very moderate things. I mean, that's D- the way you
1: see what I'm getting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's obvious, I mean, you know, that that's the way it goes. And so far, that has come up in one form or another with every one of these interviews that, that I've right? done, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying you're being hackneyed or anything. I'm just saying everybody knows that on some level. And then they choose what they want, yeah. knowing that that's what the rule is. And what ink has gone more with the simmer thing? But at the same time, you did a Peter Oblinger concert. I mean, Peter Oblinger is just starting to get really big. Where he's been for twenty five years more. More, I think he's. I don't know how long he's been in Berlin, but he's just. Like, he's, since the eighties, I yeah, think. No, yeah, no, since since the eighties. I mean, I know before. I know before the wall. I mean, I can always go back to my interview and check because he yeah. gave me a date, but. He was living in a boat for a while, and and anyway, the point is is that he's just starting now, I think, maybe these past five years, six years, to get big, and normally the way it works is that they have to become Chirino or Lachenmann then after they have undeniable cred in Europe. Then they start to like creep over here a little bit.
0: You kind of nailed it for me. And this yeah. is what I look. I love so much of what other ensembles program here. And so this isn't a beef against them, but it's it's kind of a beef against what you just outlined, which is that the tolerance of the press or the public for anything that's actually new and surprising is really frustrating. And so, it's for like, instance, it's, it's, it's always it's, Europe's yesterday's news that is somehow really fresh over here, like right now in New York. Apergase is like this revelation, like, and, oh, and 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 I love. It. Hey, look, I love this. Comp- he's a great composer, but I mean, he's not just emerging on the scene. I mean, this guy has been around for a really long time. So yeah, Peter Oblinger was somebody. This is our goal in Wet Ink. I mean, I actually take a lot of pride in is trying to not just pick these vetted composers that are already famous somewhere. I'd
1: say vetted is the perfect word. And, and do then do something it's like... that's
0: actually surprising and, and and dangerous or, you know, from a at least making money standpoint, something that's could fail, something that, you know, a lot of people loved our concert of Peter Oblinger and a lot of people hated it, but that's great. That's what made that concert so special for me is because at least it wasn't some just tepid, you know, it kind of works thing and some people
1: are going to love it and other people are going to be like, well, yeah, I mean, that was it was okay it was strong it like whenever those vetted composers come over here it's always less edgier than it appears to be although maybe that's not completely true cuz it's more conservative here and then they start having the argument and it's like supposed to be this fresh argument but it's like an argument that was battled 30 years ago in Europe and then has been settled and now all of a sudden it's this new argument that's been having over here where i don't think a lot of people in Europe still have really strong opinions about what Peter Oblinger is uh, doing, and it's and it's not settled yet, you know. And it's just interesting that. I mean, this is what's, yeah, like you said, the like the Simmer idea works very well, because I don't know another ensemble in New York that's actually really good at finding composers that are just beginning to emerge in Europe and bringing them over here. They're always so established at that point. You did the Spalinger one, yeah. although he's pretty well established now, and then the Peter Oblinger one. And the Peter Oblinger one, pretty, like shocking that you actually even knew about this guy. How did you find out about him?
0: Actually, the Peter Oblinger story is awesome <laughs> for me you know so when kairos was kind of a new label or no it was a hat art there was one of these labels i forget and i just i always wanted to hear what was newest coming out of europe and of course going to europe is one way of doing that which at the time i was too young and wasn't traveling a whole bunch even if you go to europe it's pretty difficult yeah, it's i pretty, mean you can't just can't walk off a plane and be like where is my new music so i felt like i had uh, figured out that there were a couple of labels that seemed to promote fairly new and progressive work. So some of these were just, uh, I'd always try and stay on top of what was happening in Donna Eschingen to some extent. And then these labels like Una Corda or Kairos or the Hat Hut, I would just buy these. I just, whenever I saw a name, I didn't know I would just buy it. So instead of <laughs> that's kind of like the opposite. Usually you buy you know. Because,
1: You're like, oh, I want a Chirino CD. Yeah, so okay, you
0: go, go and you buy a So I would do the opposite. I bought only CDs where I didn't know anything about the person on the CD. And this is how I came to Peter Oblinger. Really? I just, I went, I saw his name, I was like, well, that's somebody I've never... I go into Kim's records, you know? And that's where I found his album in a Kim's in New York. I was like, I don't know who this guy is. And I bought it and I loved it. I, lo- I loved the CD. So I just got really psyched about that music and started looking at ways to
1: get our ensemble to do it. Do you think, I don't want to make you smack talk or talk smack, but (laughs) do you think new music ensembles don't do that kind of work? If they're not in the scene and the people programming aren't in the scene, do you think they're not doing the work of going to a Kim's and just picking out three CDs that they've never heard of? And just through sheer coincidence and kind of maybe doing that on a regular basis, they come across these composers who haven't even broken where they're from yet. I totally think that's the case because otherwise, I
0: mean, look, and there's a reason for that too. And it's just a, it's what your function, it's whatever you see your function as an ensemble as. And what I mean by that, it's not talking smack because if your function is to provide audiences with what you consider to be good music, then you're not going to do what I just did because. I'm not sure a lot of what I'm presenting is good, you know, whatever that means. And I know this is, this is kind of a silly way of even framing this, but I want to like discover something. And that means like doing a lot of things wrong, maybe. So we'll take on composers also just that are here in the States that we just, there's something interesting about this person. Let's do a piece of music by them. And they might write us a piece of music that, you know, maybe I I am I don't feel very strongly about, but I feel very strongly about that idea of, well, what if we provide this person with a platform and you know it becomes something really special and important i like that idea and so i don't think other
1: ensembles are doing that as much but i can also kind of understand why i mean i think actually what enables you to do that is the simmer idea that you were talking about yeah i agree like if you're trying to do something on a huge scale then your incentive to do something risky and fail is a lot lot less but if it's you know, a composer that you discovered by buying random CDs and then you ask them to do a piece and it's really bad and there's only 40 people in the room, well, then no harm, no foul.
0: But it's also, I mean, I I think also there are, it's not that it's no harm, no foul. It's also wearing your beliefs a little bit, I think, more strongly on your sleeve, which is to say, when you listen to unknown music and decide to program it, you are telling people that you see value in it whether they like it or not. Like, the fact that you've decided to do this thing. If you're the only person that has that opinion, I mean, it takes a little bit of courage. I mean, than doing Chirino, I lo- Look, I love Sharino, but, like, so does so many other people that it's not... I'm not going off on a thin branch to do a Shirino concert.
1: But I think some people sell it as a thin branch. Yeah, well, that's... kind of this folk. This is what I mean about me not wanting to make you talk smack a little right. bit. Is that, okay, like you said, you understand why people... Do kind of like these very well-known avant-garde composers that have been established in europe and they bring it here and it's safe and what they're really doing is presenting quality you know high quality music to people but that's not always how it is publicized and it's no really they sign it as an experiment sold. yeah
0: but it, this experiment has already happened and yeah. they know the results yeah. like they're saying like what's gonna what you know we have this you know promising young voice like what will they be it's not a pro- the person just like had he's you know, 70 yeah he exactly. turned 70
1: last year there yeah. was a big 70th birthday right. celebration so no know. i
0: there's some of that that goes on yes well there's a lot of that that goes on but you know i'm fond of that too because i look those composers the ones that you're mentioning i want to hear their music too that's why i don't consider it talking smack about other ensembles because i want people to play salvatore serino i want people to play Apergase. i want people to play Loch and I want those people's music to be played. But I also think it's important to have a space where some really actual experimental music or or at
1: least unknown musicians get a shot. I guess I think the point I'm trying to drive home is that the, uh, how do I put this? Um, what's interesting to me is the disconnect between those two, between what's actually happening and how it's being, how people want to envision it. And that the actual scene and space for this type of experimentation, because of how it's being talked about, is a lot smaller. Yeah. I mean, that's, like, the feeling that I, you know, I have.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I I agree with that. Mm -hmm. I think I understand what you're talking about. And just, like, to sum it up in a way, to dwell on the various ways people talk about what they're doing and why they're doing it is just too depressing. (laughs) Um, Because you do find all these ulterior motives and, and whatnot. So i don't I try not to probe too deeply into that stuff because first of all, I never know if I'm right anyway, assuming what other people think, but some of the conclusions are also just like depressing, so it's like i don't spend too much time It's good as probably about it <laughs>
1: you know it probably keeps you healthier mentally No, I mean, I definitely
0: used to read like reviews and you know hear language about intrepid composers bravely you know being uh, whatever all this uh, hyperbole about something that's so old news that um I'm beyond those days of being bitter about that.
1: What I want to do right now is maybe talk a little bit about the string quartet.
0: Okay, string quartet. Uh, just in general, as a genre, is, is very attractive to me. So the string quartet for me is maybe the most important, or the, or not most important. It's it's the music I'm I find most attractive to listen to, and it's also music when I check out other composers. I'm always interested if they've written a string quartet. I always want to know if they have string quartet music. Cause is that a
1: litmus test for you in some
0: way? It's like not, are you a composer,
1: let's see if you can do it the string quartet.
0: Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's not so stark that way, like, you you know, uh, yay or nay. Like, it, you, you won't get thrown to lines if, if your string quartet sucks. But it's something I'm really, it's, you know, I always want to know if somebody's made a string quartet or not. And I'm always interested to hear new music for string quartet. And I'm also just interested in writing. I mean, this is my third quartet. It should really be my first quartet, because I think it's the other two are, are not worthy adversaries. But I spent so much time working on them that I'll leave them I'll 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 leave them alone. In any case, this quartet I wrote I think a year, maybe two years ago. I worked on it for a year and I got premiered a year ago. I knew I was writing it for the Jack quartet, and I bring that up just because performance practice in this country can be pretty awful. It can also be really amazing. And so there's some ensembles that are extremely dedicated and already come to the table with extraordinary talent, but then put in effort and understanding and all these things. And the Jack Quartet, at least for me, is one of those groups. I've heard, I mean,
1: and they're also incredibly active.
0: Okay, well, yeah, so that, that being the case, it gave me an opportunity to um, really just try everything I wanted to try. And it was actually a really great piece for me to write, like just as a process. It was like a lot of fun. I felt like I got the most out of it. I think their recording of it is fantastic. Yeah I mean I don't know what specific I mean there's specific things about it but in general a lot of it had to do with just writing for them because you know I'm a performer myself and uh, so I think pretty physically about the music as much as I do kind of abstractly. Though not being a string player it's very daunting then to try and get into very specific physical type gestures and very nuanced sounds without really getting your your hands dirty so i tried to, to get my hands dirty myself but i also felt comfortable in really trying to imagine things that maybe other people simply well i was i was just willing to fail is i guess what i'm saying i would write things and if it didn't work having just talked with those guys i knew they would just tell me like look this doesn't work and there's certain people that when they tell you it doesn't work you're never sure if they're just covering their own ass. Yeah. And, and I knew that's why. So it gave me this freedom to just do all the shit that might not work because if they told me it didn't, they were right and it didn't.
1: With players like that, there's a level of trust.
0: That's what I mean. So like I was able to really because, you know, writing for the orchestra or something like that, you
1: set yourself up for so much um, anguish. It's just you and like a hundred people that do not give a shit. Right. And they don't want to be there and the worst part is is that string players in an orchestra i mean more than anything else they have their repertoire already so i think i think they have the worst attitude you get up there and there's like 50 60 of them in the front yeah and then there's maybe the percussionist is all the way in the back and maybe he cares about what he's doing (laughs) but it's just like this sea of people who hate you in front that you have to try and convince you can't trust well, them at all. Yeah,
0: and, and not only that, not only, you know, when they do something poorly, it's hard to tell if it's you or them. Yeah, Because yeah. if they say, the oboe player says, you know, this, uh, this multiphonic doesn't work, well, have you tried, actually tried? You know, you don't know what their level of investment has been. So you don't know if you screwed up and the multiphonic doesn't work or was this person just lazy and they haven't really figured it out. Right. So my point is with the Jack Quartet, I could just try things and um, uh, just get my money's worth for the effort, you know, like really go to really try to put things together in a way that that might be um, difficult. But if anybody was going to be able to do it, they
1: would. And they did. So talk about the idea of the piece. Talk about how you put it together, the structure of it, you know.
0: Um, well, it's, okay, so it's it's one continuous movement, but I'd stress continuous because that idea has been toyed with throughout the piece. So there's 11 small sections of the piece, actually, and they're each kind of closed. In other words, they they each do something self-contained. They each have a a type of process or something that they're, uh, I don't want to all say, that sounds too directional. Sometimes it's a very permutational process, so something fairly static, but nonetheless under constant kind of change. And then other times there's a more directional process and it's this kind of balancing of these various ways of either having a forward moving process or a permutational process that gives each kind of movement its flow from one to the next. A more specific way of thinking of that is that whatever the materials are in one section, in the next section, which might, as I already mentioned, have a completely different process, at least one of those previous materials will be the focus of the next section but in a much exaggerated way for instance the piece opens up with these very very short and a kind of outbursts of glissando and in the section that follows the glissando is extremely long and so it was just taking one structure and just completely exaggerating it. But what might be a kind of background in the second section becomes the foreground of the next section and so on and so on. You're always folding something new into something previous.
1: This this is what you mean by, uh, oh, I'm such a bad interviewer, like lift, tilt, filter, split. Exactly. Yeah. If you see that visually,
0: the words lift, tilt, filter, split, they're actually doing the process. Each word means something different, but they're all permutating ILT.
1: Okay. It's in every
0: single word but its order is different. And by folding in additional letters to those three, you get different sounding words and different meanings to each of those words. So I start off with some core material. It remains in every single section, but as I said, in different proximities. But also I'm folding in new materials to change the kind of meaning, if you will, or the effect that those materials might have on the listener. What's
2: Thank <laughs>
1: I hear this kind of very hyper movement static stuff that is reminiscent of the European composers that you've found at Kim's I'm not yeah. saying you're derivative in any way but I'm but I'm saying that there's something there and I'm wondering what you got from kind of their philosophy or what you got from their techniques
0: Oh there there no that's like for, that was like for, hugely
1: important to hear that
0: music because it well it confirms a desire in me that had been overshadowed by another another affection. So here's what I mean by that. The, before I discovered, say, Oblinger, Fur, Shirino, Lachenmann, these folks, the music I was most passionate about was people like Morton Feldman and Alvin Lussier, two composers that I'm still very passionate about. So one of the things I loved so much about Alvin's music and Feldman's music are the sounds, but also for, for Feldman, you know, this idea of kind of mechanical repetition versus a kind of you know, organic sense of repetition. And also this kind of permutation of timbres, both in a fluid way and in a quite boxy way also, right? One section to the next section to the next section. Something similar with Lucier. Very clear process, very directional, very cause and effect, but with these beautiful things that happen because of the way things are colliding. And then when I first heard Oblinger's music, I was like, this is an Alvin Lucier piece, but like it plays. It's there's this famous... Um, I'm going to miss the quote. Uh, let's paraphrase it. it. In in Feldman's book, he says that somebody criticized his music saying it never played. And that would actually be my criticism of Feldman's music. I love so much about it, but it's... For me, there's this sense of um, vitality and like just pure verve, excitement, and animation that I've always been also very attracted to. Now, my earlier point was... I had pent all that up because of my affection for people like Feldman and Lucier, because I thought the conversation was somewhere else. When I heard some other composers who, by the way, themselves, are intensely, I would say, influenced by Feldman and Lucier, when I heard that, oh, this is a different conversation, but it's not throwing this other conversation out the window, This, I, I'm extremely attracted to that, and it, it did have a big effect on me. But the idea of imitation or being derivative of something, I think is a really complex issue because there's imitating something and there's entering into a dialogue with something. And I think the difference between imitating and entering into a dialogue is simply being honest and authentic about what you're actually searching for musically. And ultimately it's not something that can be called out. The composer knows whether they're doing it or not. And, um, I want to be, whatever that conversation is that I heard going on in the music of those uh, these European composers, I like that conversation, and I want to be a part of it, which means not just taking from it, but it means giving back to the conversation. So, yeah, I've been very influenced by that music, but I'd also say that I'm contributing a lot to it, and um, hopefully the message will be accepted favorably by those,
1: or not, actually. You're certainly returning the favor by bringing them over here and trying to inject them into the dialogue that's happening here. I mean, you're promoting them as something that's good. If it was just something you were trying to steal from, then maybe you wouldn't want other people to know about them. Oh, yeah. Too. No, no, no. no, yeah, yeah, And, yeah. and um, yeah, no, that's that's certainly not the case. Um, in fact,
0: because so few people know of their music, I mean, I've I've, I've had the... Sorry, there's a dog going nuts by the I've, way for I've, I've actually been in, um, when I'm presenting my music to other people, and they... One thing they'll say, um or at least in one particular instance, this fellow said, uh, this is so startlingly original to me. Like, how, like, where did this come from? Like, this is amazing. Like, you're just on to something. And I had to tell him, I said, I think you just don't know the people whose music I really like. Yeah. Because it's certainly not coming from nowhere. I actually like having that conversation. I like th- this idea of influence. I think it's very important because, sorry to get maybe a little too general, but... I think music can actually mean things and say things about, and maybe this is stating the obvious, but um, it can really say things about one's either immediate social situation or broader cultural identity or whatever. And I think one of the ways it does that is through challenging norms. But there needs to be norms. There needs to be some kind of sense of what's being deviated from. Uh, I know this is maybe an oversimplistic way of putting it, but... I mean, I don't think Bach chose certain forms because he lacked, uh, imagination. I think he chose very specific forms that other composers had used so that by deviating from them, he could say something that would be readily identifiable. You're, you're, you're giving people a reference. point of reference. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I meant by entering a conversation. When, when I'm attracted to another composer's work, I want to be part of that conversation. And so you have to, then then the next step to me would be like learning, trying to figure out what you think the conversation is. What do you think is being elaborated on? And for me, I already told you what I thought. I thought this was this coincidence, not coincidence, but this moment where uh, these composers that were very special to me, Lucier and Feldman, are, were being used in a very kind of covert way by these other composers, yeah. which I found very special. It, it was like lightning when i heard that music i knew immediately i was like this is feldman and Lucier." and you could throw in some other things just scan or uh, perotin or something like that and and then some more recent developments of course i mean their music owes i think a lot to also Loch and mom and spalinger maybe so what i'm saying is i saw this conversation going on and i think it's
1: great and i wanted to be a part of it I know when I started listening to that music, I'm like, oh, these people are. It's kind of like, oh, they're having their cake and eating it too, or or well, how does that saying go? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I mean, originally you think if you're going to use these types of kind of like long repeating sounds, the the you you had to give up this kind of idea of activity and virtuosity. Yeah, because because I feel
0: like I'm close with a lot of that music. I mean, I have fairly specific ideas about what's going on. And obviously, I have very specific ideas about what's going on in my own music. So that one needs to look beyond the surface, first of all, to understand really what's being um, what is the same or different from one person's music to the next, you know, writing active kind of staticky sectional music on the surface seems very similar from maybe one composer to the next. But there, there might be drastically different things going on. Yeah. I was thinking actually even just recently, I think taking something that's recognizable and adding even something very small can change it greatly. And from piece to piece as well. Um, in my own pieces, I really want to change things very little from one piece to the next and, and see how much difference can be made out of just very subtle changes rather than starting from scratch with everything being new and everything.
1: Really? So yeah. you, you think you're just troping an idea now?
0: No, well, that, that's, I think that's an oversimplification of, of what I meant. What you think might work in one piece, I want to then test under what circumstances, like, how, how, like why, what is working? How is it working? So to do that, you have to do the same thing in slightly different ways. And so you kind of create this boundary around what an idea is that helps you discover what the actual or the essence of that idea might be. And so I think if you leave a material after hearing it in one context, you really don't know what it is. You're just, uh, like so like for instance if you if you have an idea that's uh, articulated by an orchestra and you take the same exact structure and articulate it by a vocal ensemble, you know, it's drastically different. I mean that's stating the obvious. But I want to see those diff- I want to see different structures articulated by
1: you know the exact same structure in different forces. You're yeah. saying it's not a simplification of troping. It was you basically testing out the validity of your idea. Yeah. By it, saying, it, it, w- will it hold water when I do it to this? Will it hold water when I do it to this? Will it hold water when I do it to this?
0: Yeah. And maybe I'm just, I'm not finding the exact right way of putting it, which is, you know, obviously why it's fun and important to do it through sound. But not, will it work? See, that's the wrong way of putting it. But just, what is it? What is this thing? What, you know when you come up with a certain sound or a certain combination of sound or a certain structure or a certain um, unfolding of one sound to another or a certain you know what is this thing, what is behind it, what is making what is its power what is it you know and I think you for me, once I find uh, one of these relationships that I think is special, I want to see it under as many conditions as possible to distill it to its maybe most potent but but that's that's also not the right way of putting it it's just it's it's i guess a question of essence really finding what makes it it well i think that's a good way to end it (laughs) okay Okay? thank you
1: alex